Sermons from Union Chapel Baptist Church. We'll be in Matthew chapter 10. We're continuing our series through the book of Matthew, going verse by verse, explaining and proclaiming God's word. We'll be in Matthew chapter 10. And the title of today's message is Sending the Twelve. We'll look at how Jesus has uh, chosen his twelve apostles and he is sending them out on their first mission. And so we'll look at who these twelve apostles are. Who are they? And then we'll see how God, in his choice of these apostles, we'll see how God can use anyone for his kingdom. We'll also learn of God's grace, we'll learn of God's compassion. And we'll also see God's justice. And then lastly, we'll see how we can be sent out as well. So we're going to actually start in one verse prior to chapter 10. In verse 38 of chapter 9, we, we, do, we discussed this last week, but this leads us in to chapter 10. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 9, 38, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So again, we saw this last week, how Jesus taught his disciples, and he taught us today to pray that God would send out workers into the harvest. We should be a praying people, a praying people for his mission. We should be praying for people to go out into the harvest, that is to share the good news of the kingdom and how people can be saved from their sins and be a part of God's family and be a part of his kingdom. That's what it is to go out into the harvest. And so as an answer to their prayer, Jesus is about to send his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, out into the harvest. And this is where we arrive in chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 1. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. So at the very beginning, we see that part of Jesus' mission, part of the apostles' mission will be to drive out demons, or as Jesus calls them here, unclean spirits. So they are called unclean because they are in rebellion against God. And often we see them causing diseases, we see them causing sickness, and making the person unclean because of it. We have seen this many times in the book of Matthew thus far, and we've seen the connection between the spiritually unclean demons and the physically unclean diseases so now he shares this authority with his disciples because from until this point, Jesus is the only one who has been healing. And I asked the question is, how does one give authority or how does one give power to someone? Jesus says he's, he, he gave them the authority. Well, first of all, first of all, we should note that to share authority, it, you must first have the authority. This is a simple but basic understanding, but we must recognize and cannot miss this point that Jesus has the authority. And therefore, since he has the authority, he can share it with his disciples. We know that Jesus has the authority because he has shown it time and time again in his healings and his exorcisms. Now his disciples will be able to do what Jesus was doing. And it's not that disciples themselves had the power. Instead, it is derived power. In other words, it was Jesus' power working through them. We see shared power and authority in our daily lives. For example, in my house, I will tell Eloise to go tell her brother it's time to eat dinner. 
On her own, she doesn't have the authority to tell her brother to come to the table. But she tries to tell her brother from time to time, obviously, when we don't tell her to go tell him something. It is only when I give her the authority as a messenger is her brother to listen and obey. In the same way, the disciples are the vessels of Jesus' power. They are the messengers in which demons and diseases must listen and obey. Not because the disciples have the power in themselves, but because Jesus' power is working through them. And notice that Jesus picks out 12 disciples. This likely corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is gathering in all the peoples of the world into the kingdom of God through Israel, sending out 12 representatives, or as one commentator points out, that all the names except Andrew and Philip are Jewish in form, suggesting that Jesus' disciples were drawn mainly from the more conservatively Jewish part of the mixed population in Galilee. So he picks a Jewish man, these 12 representatives of Israel, to go out to do his mission. And also notice that he only gives the authority to these 12. He doesn't turn around to the crowds or to everyone following them, him there. He, he, speak, he picks specific people, thus implying that this is a special mission and special authority. While healings and deliverance from unclean spirits still happen today by the power of God, not the power of man, this commission and power here in Matthew 10 is, is very unique. Even in the book of Matthew, we will see a shift from this commission to what we call the Great Commission at the end of the book in Matthew chapter 28. And we'll point out some differences along the way between this, this mission in chapter 10 and, and chapter 28. But I want to point out one thing here um, by going to 1 Corinthians 12.29 to assure us and to remind us that this apostolic power of miracles, that's not the main thing for our Christian life. We don't want to say this is what we are striving for, like healings and miracles. That's not the normal experience. And what Paul is urging the Corinthians and us today is something different. Look in 1 Corinthians 12, 29. He asks, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The implied answer is no. Not everyone heals. Not everyone can do miracles. And that's okay, because look at verse 31. He says, desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. And in 13.1, he says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. So just like in Jesus' time, many people today desire miraculous gifts. We desire gifts of healing. And while these are good and we can pray for God to do miraculous healings, Paul makes it clear here that healing and miracles are not the greater gifts. One of the greater gifts we should be desiring is the gift of love. The emotion, the thinking, the action of putting someone else above yourself, treating them as you would want to be treated, that is the gift of love that we should be desiring. So with that in mind, let's see who these 12 disciples are. 
who Jesus will call apostles in verse 2. So Matthew 10, verse 2. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So we have already seen Jesus call these four fishermen to follow him in Matthew chapter 4. Now they have learned how to be fishers of men. They've been following Jesus, and he, when he called them, he said, you, I will make you into fishers of men. And so at this point, they are ready to be sent out to go fishing. For this is what it means to be an apostle. An apostle means a sent out one. So he is sending them out. Now, the, the term apostle is also mainly used in reference to this select group of 12 men. And also Paul, who will be called out and sent out by Jesus himself. So this select group of 13 is what some call capital A apostles. That is, they are the apostles, the, this special group of apostles. They're specially selected and sent out. Because there are a few occasions, rare, uh, two times that I've seen, that the term apostle is also someone else not in this group. Uh, that's in Philippians 2 and 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, but they're, they're just messengers. They're, they're, they're literally the sent out ones. So they're not of this group. And another instance of the word apostle also comes in reference to Jesus. And Jesus is called an apostle in Hebrews 3.1. And he's called an apostle because he was sent by God the Father. So as the Father sent the Son, Jesus sends us. John 17, 18 makes that clear. He says, as you sent me into the world, Jesus says, I also have sent them into the world. So Jesus is not commanding us to do something he has already not done. He left the glory of heaven, entered into the world of sin, disease, heartache, death. He even humbled himself to the point of a humiliating, agonizing death of a Roman cross. But he rose again, and he sends out his disciples to tell this story. And so back in verse 2 of Matthew 10, we've already seen Jesus call these four fishermen to follow him so that he would make them fishers of men. And we see Peter here is mentioned first. He is the leader of the group and the frequent spokesperson. His name means rock, which Jesus will make a point of in Matthew 16. And Andrew, his brother, was one of the, as one commentator points out, uh, Andrew was the first known disciple of John the Baptist to begin to follow Christ. And that's in John 1.40. And as far as James and John go, we'll read more about them in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 and following. And then the next disciples, in verse 3, we have Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. So Philip plays a larger role in John's gospel. So if you want to learn more about who Philip was and what he had to contribute in this history, uh, you can read John's gospel for that. Uh, we don't know much more about him in Matthew or Bartholomew. We don't know much about who, who they were. Uh, Thomas, you can read a little bit more about Thomas in John 20, 26. You, you probably know Thomas. He came to be known as Doubting Thomas, right? Um, and while not recorded in the scriptures, 
Thomas is traditionally credited with taking Christianity to India. So he didn't stay doubting Thomas, but he became a, a believing Thomas and going out to be a missionary. So an interesting, I want to point out one thing here in this, in this lineup, is that Matthew is labeled the tax collector. Now we've already talked about how uh, a big deal it was for a Jewish person to be a tax collector. They were hated by their fellow Jews because they were seen as traitors. They were serving the Roman government. Um, and if you want a good depiction of what that would look like just visually, uh, I've started watching the, series, the TV series The Chosen. Uh, you can watch it online for free. Um, but it gives a good depiction of what, how Matthew would have been treated in his time. He would have been hated. So it's interesting that Matthew, the author of this book, includes this about himself. It's like this. If you were given the opportunity to write a story about the past in which you were part of the, this event, wouldn't you want to put yourself in the best light possible? Wouldn't you want to cut those details out that make you look bad? Matthew doesn't cut out the detail that he's a tax collector, but he leaves it here. And he also uh, changes the order of his name uh, with Thomas. He places Thomas before himself in the order of listing. And many commentators point out that it, it's usually the first person, the more important person is listed first. That's why we have Peter listed at the first of uh, the list here. But, he plays, but Matthew puts Thomas here, which is in contrast to the, uh, the order of the other listings in Mark and Luke. So Mark and Luke put Matthew before Thomas. So I think what Matthew is doing here is showing that he's learned the way of humility. Humility. He exhibits his humility in the way he presents himself. He says, yes, I was a sinner. I was a tax collector. I was, I'm, more hum, I'm humble in a way. I'm putting myself after Thomas. As Eusebius notes long, long ago, he says, Matthew does not conceal his former way of life, but counts himself together with the sinners and places Thomas before himself, honoring his fellow apostle as greater contrary to what the other evangelists have done in Mark and Luke. So I think it was very interesting that Matthew includes that little detail there. And lastly, we don't know much about James or Thaddeus. And while these men were specially selected and sent out by Jesus, they focused on building God's kingdom and not their own. They spread the name of Jesus, not their own name. They didn't become famous. We don't know much about them. And then now we turn to the last pair in verse 4. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now this is an interesting pair here for, for two reasons. Simon the Zealot first, because... Uh, now first of all, zealot uh, could mean that he was simply zealous. Like he was a zealous one. That he was enthusiastic about Judaism. As Paul was zealous for the law in Acts 21.20, that same word is used. He was zealous for the law. Or, I think more likely, that Simon was a zealot in the sense that he was part of the revolutionary political movement against the Roman government. So, some people don't think, some commentaries that I read, they said that Simon, they don't think Simon was part of the political movement because they, they think it would be unlikely that Jesus would have made someone like that a part of his inner circle. I'm like, really? <laughs> That's the whole point of Jesus' mission. Changing sinners into followers of Jesus, right? 
And then they also said it would have been odd for uh, a, someone who is a political uh, revolutionary to be friends and to be a fellow disciple with Matthew the tax collector. I'm like, again, that's the point. Jesus transforms people and he can change people. Because in the forgiveness of sins, he transforms their lives. Where before, Simon, the zealot, may have hated Matthew and disobeyed anything from the Roman government. But in Jesus, and after following him, Simon could have learned to love his enemies, learned to love even Matthew, even carry a Roman soldier's pack two miles instead of just one, and even learn from a Roman soldier, the centurion, learn from his faith. So it does seem that Simon was a, he was a political anti-Roman zealot, but he changed when he followed Jesus. And the second interesting point about this pair is Judas. Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now the term Iscariot, used to describe Judas, has been debated on its origins and meaning. Most have said it refers to where he is from. Some say it means uh, he, that he was an assassin or a bandit, or a false one, or a purse bearer, that is, uh, someone who carries the treasury for the group, which he does, um, or that he had, he, was red hair, he had red hair, or even that he was a painter of red. So there's all these different uh, options there, and there's, not a consen- there's, there's the majority view that's just where he's from. But the point is, I don't think that's that big a deal here. What is clear is the second part, that we are told in the first time that Judas will betray Jesus. Judas will hand Jesus over. His own apostle will betray him. He will deliver Jesus to be crucified. So what are we to do, what are we to make of this ragtag group of people? Why has Jesus made this group of people his apostles and given them authority, and why is he about to send them out? I think it shows us God's grace. It shows us that God chooses average people, fishermen, tax collectors, former political zealots. He chooses people with sinful pasts. He chooses people with maybe perhaps the best education. Some people, some of these apostles may have had a good education. Some people, some of these apostles were looked down upon. God can use any person for his glory and build his kingdom. We see this in 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Paul makes this point. He says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead... God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So I think God is he's showing his power that it's not about these disciples. These were not like revolutionary leaders that would change the world on their own. But through Jesus, they will be. And then the second question is, why would Jesus choose Judas? Jesus being God in the flesh... Jesus being omniscient, he knows all things. Knowing Judas would betray him, why did he choose Judas? Here, I think, is an example of God's ways are higher than our ways. While we have trouble accounting for something like this, Jesus knew it had to be this way from the beginning. 
Jesus came into the world knowing that his people would ultimately reject him. Even one of his closest, closest followers would reject him. For he knew he came to earth to die. We'll see Jesus predict his death, and he predicts Judas' betrayal later in the book. And we'll see at the end of the book a contrast between Peter, who's listed as the first of the disciples, and Judas, the last. A contrast in that Peter rejected Jesus. Peter rejected Jesus three times. He denies him three times at the end. But what is different about Peter and Judas is that Peter repented and came back to Jesus. While Judas had the same opportunity to be forgiven, even be forgiven of betraying the Son of God, handing him over to be crucified, he could have been forgiven. But Judas chose to, pay, to try to pay his own sin debt another way instead of repenting and trusting in Jesus. So in the apostles, we have seen God's grace on them. We have seen Jesus empower them for his mission. And we've also seen his sovereign hand, his controlling hand in history. Now to the next section, we see Jesus sending them out in verse 5. Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. So here's a really good example of the importance of reading Scripture in context. Because taken out of context of the rest of Matthew's Gospel, taken out of context of the rest of the Bible, this seems to say that missions should uh, not be sent out to Gentiles and Samaritans. But we know Jesus is the son of Abraham. That is, he's the blessing to the whole world. The one who has come to save the whole world. Gentiles and Samaritans Israel, all nations, tribes, and tongues. But here, in this particular mission, Jesus wants his 12 disciples to focus on the people of Israel, as he says in verse 6. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So like mentioned last week, Jesus had compassion on the people of Israel because they were, shepherd, they were without shepherds to guide them. Their religious leaders, the Pharisees, were supposed to guide them into righteousness, guide them in the mercy of God, but they didn't get it. They didn't get the mercy of God, and they did not treat their people with mercy. So Jesus here is sending out his under-shepherds to show compassion, to show the mercy of God to the lost sheep of Israel. God is faithful to his covenant promises to Israel, and he is seeking them out once again. And we see that God has always been faithful to his promise. He will continue to be faithful to his promises to us as well. Even if you have been like a lost sheep, whether because a lack of shepherding or because you thought there were greener pastures on the other side, God is faithful and is always willing and wanting you and welcoming you back. We see this in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what you've done, all sin, all unrighteousness can be forgiven. And part of the mission Jesus is sending his 12 disciples out, sending out his under shepherds to show mercy and compassion, is to proclaim the kingdom of God. For he tells them this in verse 7. He says, As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of heaven to earth. 
God's rule and reign began in Jesus' ministry. He taught how to enter into the kingdom through repentance and faith and taught how to live in God's kingdom. And to prove that the kingdom of heaven is near, Jesus commands them to do this in verse 8. To show that the kingdom of heaven is here, he says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. And he says, Freely you received, freely give. One commentator points out that Jesus empowered the apostles to perform even his most amazing miracles. And to emphasize that it is by God's grace, Jesus tells them to freely give these healings because it was freely given to them. The authority was freely given to them. This is in contrast to some false teachers today that say in order to be healed, you must first give money to their church. Jesus says in verse 9, Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff for the worker is worthy of his food. So while they were not to charge people to hear about the kingdom or to be healed, making it a requirement, it was expected that the worker is worthy of his food. That is, that Jesus described these 12 missionaries as workers, workers of his kingdom, of the harvest. And because they are working for the kingdom of God, they are worthy of being provided for. As Jesus will explain in the following verses, those who accept their message will willingly take care of them. This is not out of compulsion, not out of guilt or a requirement, but out of the flow of accepting the gospel. Because they accepted Jesus' message, they will, out of the generosity of their heart, they will provide for these missionaries. They will provide these workers that are working for the kingdom of God. Paul applies this same principle to the preachers and teachers of the church, saying they are worthy of double honor and worthy of their wages in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And Jesus further his, furthers his instructions and describes how the twelve will survive on their journey. Because if they're not to take these things, how are they going to survive? Verse 11. When you enter, in any, when you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. So just as the twelve are worthy of their food, they are to find people in each city that are worthy. And so as a missionary, or even just as someone who shares the gospel with people in your everyday life, when you're meeting people, what does it mean to find a person who is worthy? Jesus explains in verse 12. He says, Greet a household when you enter it, and if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. And here's the key point in verse 14. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. So the person who is worthy, the house that is worthy, is the person who welcomes you and listens to your words. So we are responsible for sharing God's message. That is our responsibility, to go out and share the message. We are not responsible or have the ability nor the power to make people believe. Therefore, if we share with someone about Jesus and they reject it, they reject the message of Jesus, they reject Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus says, just dust off your feet and go on to the next person. 
Now, Dr. Quarles points out how the act of dusting off one's feet in this situation likely signified that the village was unholy and defiled. The practice most likely relates to Jewish concerns about the ritual purity of the soil of foreign countries. Because Jews viewed the soil of Gentile lands as defiled, since they assumed that Gentiles did not properly bury corpses and human remains were mixed with the soil. So the, even though they were going to the lost sheep of Israel and they were Jewish by birth, they lived in the land of Israel. Jesus is saying if they did not accept him as the Messiah, if they did not accept the message, then they were to be considered the same on the same level as unrepentant pagans, dusting off the feet of the unclean. Again, Jesus is focused on their hearts, and he's focused on our hearts. He's focused on whether we repent and believe in him. Because on the judgment day, who your family was, where you lived at, that's not going to help your fate one way or the other. Now, a, a note here as well, that this, this passage doesn't mean we can't pray for their heart to change. If we go to someone and we share the message of Christ and they reject it, we can still pray for them. We can still go back to them and try again. But what Jesus' point here is to, that we share the gospel with as many people as we can and invest and spend time with those that are willing to listen. Because, again, we can't make someone listen. We can't make some, someone believe. We can just share and love them the best we can. And while we have seen how Jesus is compassionate, We've seen how Jesus is merciful. He's bringing in the kingdom of God. He's healing people. He's offering forgiveness of sins. We will now see how Jesus is also just. That is, he warns that for those who do not turn to him in repentance and faith will face judgment. Our last verse of this morning, verse 15. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, that is the town that rejected him, that did not greet and welcome and listen to his messengers. So Jesus here is referring to the destruction of the city Sodom and Gomorrah. As someone asked me last week, they asked me if I'm a fire and brimstone preacher. I said, I'm a Bible preacher. And so when the Bible speaks of fire and brimstone, then I will speak of fire and brimstone. Because that is, what, is how God judged those cities in Genesis 19.24 for their sins. He judged them with fire and brimstone. They were completely destroyed. And Jesus says that those that reject him and his message will suffer more in eternity than Sodom and Gomorrah. So thus the message of Jesus is vital. It's urgent for two reasons. First, positively. By trusting in Jesus as your God, as your Savior, as your King, you get to have a restored relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven. You get to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life that God created you to live, to honor Him in all that you do. You get to share this good news with others, and He sends you out and empowers you to do so. There's a second reason, negatively, which is implicit in the good news, is that there's bad news. For if you are not forgiven of your sins, then you will face the just punishment for them. And we cannot take that lightly. 
So in some sense, at the close of today's message, if you have listened to this message and listened to God's word, listened to Matthew 10, Jesus has knocked on your door. Will you welcome him? Will you welcome his messengers? Will you be worthy house of God? Or will you politely close the door and say, no thanks, I'm good, or not right now. Your polite rejection of Jesus is still a rejection. And you may have shut the door on Jesus many times in your life. But the thing about God, while he is just, he's also patient and gracious. Receiving back any sheep that have gone astray. So don't pass up this opportunity to come back into the fold of God. For those sheep already in the fold, like Jesus sent out his 12 disciples and his 12 apostles, he sends us out to gather in the harvest and lead other sheep into the fold. Lead them to their ultimate shepherd, Jesus the Savior. Thanks for listening. For more information, see unionchapelbaptist.org.